0: Our message today comes from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 12, from the message translation. Since God has so generously let us in on what he is doing, we're not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job just because we run into occasional hard times. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes, and we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. If our message is obscure to anyone, it's not because we're holding back in any way. No, it's because these other people are looking or going the wrong way and refuse to give it serious attention. All they have eyes for is the fashionable God of darkness— They think he can give them what they want, and they won't have to bother believing a truth they can't see. They're stone blind to the day-spring brightness of the message that shines with Christ, who gives us the best picture of God we'll ever get. Remember, our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Master. All we are is messengers, errand runners from Jesus for you. It started when God said, light up the darkness, and our lives filled up with light as as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. If If you only look to us, you might as well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We've we've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't broken. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder, what Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been working through this Paul series,
1: and today will be our last day to look at it. Um, Just as an FYI, um, Paul did write Romans as well, and we're not going to have time to get into that because we have some other things we need to get to. Hopefully we can do Romans another day, although I feel like Romans is probably like a year-long walkthrough anyway, right? (laughs) That's a slog. So we've been talking about the seven definitive Pauline letters that we know for sure that, G, that Paul wrote. And they, are, they were all written in the 50s uh, common era, the 50s CE, about uh, 20 years after Jesus died. So there is the First Thessalonians is the oldest one that we have. Then we have Galatians. Let's see if I can remember this off the top of my head. <laughs> first Thessalonians, then Galatians, then... First Corinthians, then Philemon, and then Philippians, and now Second Corinthians. If I'm wrong, don't tell me. I feel really good about that moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> oh man. So all these were written, all these seven Pauline written Pauline definitive Pauline letters were written in the fifties, about twenty years after Jesus died. The Gospels weren't even written then. The first gospel was Mark and it won't be written until the seventies. C. E. So Paul has nothing to work with here other than his experience and what he sees and who he is. So here's a synopsis of First and Second Corinthians. Now, we talked about how Paul was really crazy about the, the church in Thessalonica, and he was real crazy about the church in Philippi. But I think we probably all know some sort of way that the Corinthian church was a whole different animal. They had so many problems. And probably the biggest reason they had problems is because they were most likely a larger congregation. With more people, it just becomes a little bit more complicated. But this is the synopsis of 1 and 2 Corinthians. They were turning a blind eye to incest. The rich were suing the poor over minor easily Uh, resolved in fractions. They were fighting over who gets married. They were fighting over who gets divorced. They were fighting over who gets to stay celibate. They were fighting over who cannot get divorced. They were arguing over eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. The rich are eating all the food and drinking all the best wine at communion and leaving the second best and third best for the working class and the poor when it came to communion, leaving those people with crumbs. They are arguing over which is the best spiritual gift and which teacher is the best. But because of the Corinthians getting so many things wrong, we get the privilege of learning valuable truths from what is a good way to follow Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians, we read about love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than itself. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first doesn't fly off the handle doesn't keep score of the sins of others doesn't revel when others grovel takes pleasure in the flowering of truth puts up with anything trust god's all, trust god always always looks for the best <clears throat> excuse me never looks back and keeps going to the end we also learn in 2 Corinthians about the ministry of reconciliation that because of what Christ did for us on the cross he reconciled us to God and now we can be reconciled to one another when we have disagreements. When there's not peace between us, that we have the ability to make peace between us, both sides have to be agreed. It's not just peace for peace's sakes, but there has to be a work, a working those things out. We learn that we give Not out of obligation or guilt, but from a happy heart. Because we want to, not because we are commanded to. We learn that Paul has a thorn in his flesh and we're not told what that is. And he prays over and over and over to be rid of that thorn and he never is. And then he says, however, your grace is sufficient for me. We learn that when we are weak, God is strong and sustains us. And finally, we learn that you and I are fragile, easily broken and damaged we can so easily break and damage others because we are all clay pots. Yet even in our clay pots, we have treasure that roots us and holds us up when all hope is gone. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, in the message, since God has so generously let us in on what he is doing, we're not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job. What has God generously let us in on? In chapter 3, we read that Moses and the Israelites could not see the fullness of God in God's glory because a veil had been placed over their eyes. They could only see glimpses and shadows and tried to make comparison with the other gods around them and how people behaved with their gods and maybe could have assumed that our God would behave the same way. But they never were able to fully comprehend the fullness of the beauty of God because of the veil. But because that literal veil was torn at the cross, we don't have a veil obscuring God from us. We know who God is because we see who Jesus was. And because of that, another message of 2 Corinthians, we are all being transformed from glory to glory, from circumstance to circumstance. Always transformation. Always transformation. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes, and we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. Y'all, we could do like a whole series on bad theology, and maybe one day we can. The bad theology that is designed to control and coerce and abuse shame and belittle us to get us to adhering to and the damage that that does to our souls I have some stories I bet you do too the message goes on to say if our message is obscure is obscure to anyone it's not because we're holding back in any way no it's because these other people are looking or going the wrong way and refuse to give it serious attention. All they have eyes for is the fashionable God of darkness. They think He can give them what they want. We, you and I, get so entangled in looking the other way. We are living lives, we can live lives contrary to the example that Christ set for us. And when we do that, we miss it. We miss seeing the fullness of the beauty of God because we are not looking for it. We're looking at wrong things and wrong people. We're looking at the, and I'm not talking about cultural things like music and movies and books and some of that other stuff. I'm talking about, we are looking to the wealthy, the powerful, to political parties. We're looking at systems and levers of influence, influence to fix things, and while some looking at those things are important, and we do have to turn our attention to that. When injustice is, be, is happening, we have to speak to that. We have to do something about that. When there is oppression and marginalization, we should have the guts to speak up and say, that is not okay. But we see the beauty of the fullness of God when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And what was Jesus doing while he was on earth? What things and people did Jesus center his world on? The, po- the poor, the powerless, The lame and the blind, the sick, the sex worker, the tax collector, the discarded, the othered. He didn't devise a plan to make Rome a Christian nation. He wasn't plotting and scheming to make a political system in his image. He pursued people who had been disadvantaged in Rome. He was showing us that everyone, everyone, everyone is made in the image of God, and we are the beloved of God. He was showing us what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like on earth as it is in heaven. And that is how we see the beauty of the fullness of God. And you might be like me. It's so much easier to argue with people on Facebook and miss seeing that person on the other side of the screen as a beloved image bearer. It's so much easier to defend our political preferences, political parties and politicians and missing that the person we are fighting is a beloved image bearer. It is so much easier to demonize the person on welfare, the woman who had an abortion, the woman who didn't have an abortion, the immigrant, the person who only has a GED, the person who has thousands of dollars of student loan debt, the person who is gay or transgendered or has a black or brown body. It's so easy to demonize the McConnells and the Pelosi's of our world. They're easy targets. We're never gonna meet them. I'm not gonna meet Pelosi or McConnell. I I can't imagine that I would. But when we demonize, we are looking and going the wrong way and we refuse to give it serious attention because all we have eyes for is the fashionable God of darkness. God, help us not to fall into this way of living, of walking down this broad path and forsaking the narrow way, the narrow way of following Jesus. God, help us to have courage to call out unjust systems of oppression and marginalization without demonizing the people who are being hurt by those systems. God, help us not to be silent when people are being demonized, marginalized, discriminated against. God, help us to see your image bearers correctly. God, help us to see you correctly in your beauty and in your fullness. So remember, the message goes on to say, our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ the masters. All we are is messengers, errand runners from Jesus for you. It started when God said, light up the darkness. And our lives filled up with light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright, all beautiful. But if you only look at us... You might well miss the brightness because we carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That is to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of it. You know for yourself that we're not much to look at. I laugh every time I go over that line. I just think it's so interesting. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized. But God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't been broken. And we are treasures in clay pots. So, when I tell you That I don't know the difference between a weed and a flower, best believe. Best believe, because I don't. I would kill everything that was good because I just thought, well, it kind of looked like a weed, so there it goes. You don't ever want me working in the garden. You would hate me, Kelly. You would hate me. I have no sense when it comes to this stuff. This is too hard for me. This is too hard. Do you ever get to a point in your life, you're like, I've learned all I want to know and need to know I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) I don't need to learn about this one. I'm good. But the common clay jar, just a common clay jar, they're inexpensive. You can get some fancier ones that are really pretty and ornamental. But these, just an inexpensive thing. In the Passion Translation, when it talks about the clay jars, it says this. We are like common clay jars that carry this glorious treasure within so that this this immeasurable power will be seen as God's, not ours. Though we experience every kind of pressure, we are not crushed. At times we don't know what to do, but quitting is not an option. We are persecuted by others, but God has not forsaken us. We may be knocked down, but we are not out. I think everybody could relate to being knocked down and crushed and perplexed and even angry, even doubtful, all of the above. I want to share a story with you. <clears throat> I'll grab some water. <clears throat> I felt called to ministry at the age of 15. It was a very distinct, magical, sweet uh, moment. But I never really knew what that was going to do, what that that was going to look like. So I just began doing whatever was right in front of me to do. And that's what I did for years. And so when I went through my divorce in 2016, I was in my 40s. I felt old and not of much use and felt like my life is over. Now I'm getting divorced. Nobody's going to want a divorced person on staff at a church. I had rejection from my friends. It was part of my deconstruction phase and there were people that no longer wanted to walk side by side with me. When I decided that It was time to leave an abusive marriage. I was making $10.50 an hour, working 32 hours a week. I lost my home, I lost my car, I lost everything. Quit going to church for a while. I felt like, well, we're done. We're done. And then an old friend called me one day in the middle of all of this. Her name was Debbie Rayburn. This was March the 7th, 2016. And this is what I wrote. Haven't heard from Debbie in over 10 years. She called me today and we talked for three hours. I met her when I was 24 years old and she was 44. I was 44 at this time. Colby, my oldest child, was two and her only daughter Leah was two. We met at West Heights Baptist Church in Pontotoc, Mississippi in 1996. We were fast friends and she was like a big sister to me old enough to be my mother, but because she had a child the same age as mine, she didn't feel like my mom. She always said she was quote, old as dirt, unquote. But now that I'm 44, well, she wasn't. Debbie had spent her entire life in church. She knew church life and politics like no one else. She just didn't know Jesus. She was very wealthy, polished, educated, and Southern, very Southern. She came from a dysfunctional childhood, an only child that was worshipped by her father and despised by her mother, married her high school sweetheart to escape her mother's rage to find a monster in her husband. He was an alcoholic who was physically absent, emotionally vacant, but was wealthy. And Debbie had Leah at 42 after 20-plus years of marriage and fertility treatments. I began teaching ladies' Bible studies at West Heights and leading women's ministry at 24 in a church of 700 people. Debbie got involved. She had never heard anyone teach the Bible like I did, crazy young that I was. And oh, how I loved the Word and how I loved Jesus. Just couldn't get enough. My soul was on fire. Any of you with an evangelical background, that ought to ring a bell with you, okay? Okay. She asked me to come over once a week to her huge home on the lake and teach her the Bible while our children played, and I did. This continued for a couple of years. We taught women's conferences together. We partnered on many things and enjoyed serving together. We moved to Tupelo, then to Haleyville, to the Huntsville, and Debbie has remained in Pontotoc in the same house on the lake. Leah is about to graduate from college. Debbie's father has passed away. Debbie's husband has a six year old little boy that he had secretly stowed away and their divorce was final last year. She called to tell me that 20 years ago, she met a little young blonde haired girl named Melinda who changed her life and that no one she met before and no one she's met since has impacted her as much as me. I showed her Jesus, she said, and she fell in love with him for the first time in 44 years. And in the 20-plus years since then, she has not gotten over it. I could not believe what I was hearing. I loved Debbie and enjoyed our friendship, but I had no idea about all this other stuff. She wanted to know what I was doing for Jesus and where I am. I told her about Locust Grove, my church then. I told her about finishing graduate school, working on my degree in religious studies, and she said this, and I wrote this in quotes. (laughs) <laughs> Melinda, remember this, I am so glad that you are credentialed now, I always knew you would be someday, and I know that you will do great things for the kingdom with those credentials. I hope you realize that I slipped into a little bit stronger southern accent while reading this, sorry, if it puts you off, I'm sorry. But remember this always darling. You were credentialed in the study of God's word at the age of 24 before you ever credentialed in the eyes of an institution. You were credentialed at 24. Lord have mercy. We are crushed. We will stay crushed. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Here's what happens sometimes to us. You know this, right? Like, what's gonna happen? How hard of a tap does it have to be? Just a little bit? Maybe a little bit harder than I thought. Come on now. There you go. Sorry. Yep, that's it, right? Man, some of these taps and these dents and these kicks that we get from life, from jobs, from spouses, from friends, all of the things that hurt us, the horrible cancer diagnosis, the loss of a loved one too early, too soon, all of these things. And we're just, you know, ugh, we're just broken. We are fragile. It's not going to hold that. It's not. It's not going to work. It's just not going to work. And yet we don't give up. We rest. We catch our breath. We find our center once again, and that takes time. We need to heal. We need our wounds cleaned and disinfected, stitched back together, time. There's a verse in the Bible in Psalm where it says God uh, binds the wounds of the brokenhearted. And it's my absolute favorite Hebrew word. This word binds. It means to stitch together over time. My friends, this does not happen overnight to get back to to our center. It takes time to be bound back up. To be loved and feel love again. Listen, during that period of my life, and and I pulled out journals this weekend, just stacks of them, and I thought, I wish I could share all of it with you. So you could see at 26 when I wrote, God is an asshole. There is no God. I'm done. Get me out of here. There is no God. And the other times that I sat there and said, God, you came through I'm so sorry I called you names. I'm so sorry I didn't love you. There were days when all I could ever say in my head was God is for me and God is not against me. I did not know they were gonna sing that song this morning. I'm telling you, if today all you got is God is for me and God is not against me. That's enough to get you through this day, my friend. It's enough. One more time to the journal. Ooh, I did make a mess, sorry. I want to read you a quote from Ann Lamont. If I can find it, there it is. She says, redefinition is a nightmare. We think we've arrived in our nice pottery barn boxes, and then that or this is true. Then something happens that totally sucks, and we are in a new box. And it's like changing into clothes that don't fit, that we hate. Yet the essence remains. Essence is malleable, fluid, Everything we lose is Buddhist truth. One more thing that you don't have to grab with your death grip and protect from theft or decay. It's gone. We can mourn it, but we don't have to get down in the grave with it. We might lose friends too in some of these processes, and that's okay. Okay here's the thing, you know, a little gorilla glue, a little time it took overnight. I, I wouldn't hardly touch it because it probably will still shatter. <laughs> I want you to continue to use your imagination with me for just a minute more with my metaphor of clay pots. I want you to see and imagine that all this gorilla glue around here, around this pot, I want you to imagine that that's your community. This is Imago day. We need each other. We need times of rest and retreat, but we need each other. We do not heal well by ourselves. We need help on this narrow way. We need the glue that is our community of believers, our community of Jesus followers. We fill that pot with water And we keep on growing. And then you fill it up and realize that, oh, there's a small crack right here that didn't quite get glued together. And the water leaks, but that's okay. Because it just means there's still work for you to do in that healing space. Patch it up where it's weak. And maybe you need to ask someone for help with that leak. Maybe you need to see a therapist, a counselor, a doctor. But you know it's there. Find the tools that work for you and what mends you that patches the crack. I hope that you can find community at Amago Day. I pray that we are a safe place for you. That's my greatest prayer. Is that Amago Day is a safe place for you where you can find peace, rest, comfort, encouragement, healing. Rachel Held Evans once said, "The truth is the church doesn't offer a cure. It doesn't offer a quick fix." The church offers death and resurrection. The church offers the messy, inconvenient, gut-wrenching, never-ending work of healing and reconciliation. The church offers grace. May we always be a community that offers grace.